This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Mark Cooper, longtime journalist and USC professor of journalism, joins me in conversation about the changing world of journalism today, looking at the dynamic evolution of knowledge, the written and spoken word, in our digital age. How does the predominant carrier of information, which used to be newsprint, then television, now digital, change our concept of knowledge? And as the new technologies make it possible for the democratization and deprofessionalization of journalism, we ask, who's a journalist? How do we interact with the new media landscape? And how do we make it work for those of us trying to build a more just society? All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mark Cooper is a veteran journalist and author. For 10 years, he hosted the popular Radio Nation show on Pacifica. He's written three nonfiction books, including his best-selling memoir of his time as translator to Chilean Socialist President Salvador Allende in the early 70s. And he's written about politics, culture, and media, not to mention Las Vegas, for 45 years, for dozens of publications, and from more than 40 countries around the world. Mark was also a founding senior editor for the Huffington Post, and during the 2008 campaign, he was editorial director of the HuffPost's off-the-bus citizen journalism project, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. As an associate professor, Mark also went on to found and direct the Digital News Studies program at the USC Annenberg School for Journalism. He's now an emeritus professor of journalism, but he's about to start a new media project of his own, which we're going to talk about later in this show. But now, um, what better guest to tackle our main topic today, which is just exactly what is the state of the mainstream media and how we deal with it. So, Mark, first, welcome. And obviously, there's a huge technological revolution we're living through, which is transforming media and communications generally. So let's begin with that and why we're having this conversation today. Yeah, sure, Susie. Well, thank you for uh, hosting me. And it's going to be a pleasure uh, talking to you. You know, the media is a greatly mystified institution from all sides of the political spectrum. And uh, there are political analyses to be made of this or that coverage, but they generally fall short of understanding the real nature of the media of the media um, ecosphere, if you will. Mm-hmm. So let me let me you know, and, and and that manifests itself in many ways. People saying. Uh, lamenting the death of newspapers, worrying about the number of journalists who are laid off, uh, worried about the cacophony of social media and uh, digital media. Uh, all that's understandable, but it doesn't really give us an analysis of where we're at. Uh, so, you know, what you get instead is a mix of despair, nostalgia, and confusion. Mm-hmm. So, w- w- with that, let me let me just say this. As we sit here today, we are in the midst of a revolutionary transition from one media era to another. And in political terms, it's like a political or social revolution. The old regime, uh, that is to say the media as we knew it, let's say basically uh, post-World War II, that model is dead and, and is dead. Uh, 
not completely, still around, going to be around in some form or another for a long time. But the model is dead and dying. Newspapers, with few exceptions, are uh, not doing very well at all in closing. Uh, network television is now, just in the last year or two, in a, a real crisis as um, digital streaming uh, takes over. So what we can say is that the old model has been smashed. Mm -hmm. But like in all political revolutions or in all revolutions, uh, the new model is yet to be born. Uh, and we're not sure what that new model is. Uh, we have many in this transitional period, which might last 10 years, 100 years, 400 years. We don't know. All we know is that we're experimenting with different models and life will go on, information will go on, news will go on, but it's going to take, and it's already taking, different forms. Let me just finish the answer to this question by saying, we're, uh, gee, I sound like Marlon Brando in, in the movie Burn. I love that film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the epoch the era of print as the major carrier of information and knowledge, what is known as the typographical era is now ending. A new era has begun. A new revolution has begun. And that revolution, which destroyed the old typographical era is the digital revolution. That digital revolution is going to change the world even more than the typographical revolution that was set off by the invention of movable type and the printing press by Gutenberg in the 15th century. Before you go on, Mark, I want to just kind of recap that because it's what you're saying, and it's very true that we're living in this period of change for which we cannot see what is being born in some instances. We see some of it. And right. that, and that, you know, as they could say that the, uh, from the old within the old, you see the birth pangs of the new, but it retains features of the old as well. For so, sure. so in a way, you're saying that the old form of media presentation, and I want you to go into it, is being superseded, but it's also being retained in kind of consistent strained and restricted forms. Yes, I would word that a little bit differently and say that the dominant technology, the dominant carrier of most information, which has been print, and then in the last, you know, half century or so, uh, uh, network television, right? Right. Uh, that model has already been destroyed by the digital revolution, okay? They're victims of the revolution. Now, having said that, historically, when any technology, any form of technology becomes secondary or becomes or gets overcome by a new technology, it doesn't disappear, right? What it does is it becomes a more niche, a more boutique, mm. a more um, elite almost museum quality piece example uh you know the horse and buggy was uh displaced by the car by the automobile but you can still take a horse and buggy around central park right the the uh fountain pen 
was replaced by the ballpoint that cost, you know, a fraction of that. But uh, old pens, ink pens, uh, fountain pens still exist. But now they're collector's items. Uh, Certainly... You still have some of those old, what were they called, eight-track cassettes? Absolutely. (laughs) And, of course, when we come to what I think is the center of this discussion, which is, you know, information and news, um, there is going to continue to be uh, print, but it is not going to be primary. It's going to be expensive. It's going to continue but it's not going to be dominant. It's going to be a boutique technology. So I, I can't make solid predictions, but I think that, you know, very strong institutions in print, of which there are a few. At the moment, there are two or three, which is the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. Those are likely to survive in some form or another, but, you know, they're going to be expensive, they're going to be limited, and they're going to be under constant. Uh, uh, they're going to be under the constant thumb, if you will, of the more dominant digital technology. Well, let me just ask you right there, because we've already seen how they a lot of that has been, you know, converted to the web, and a lot more people look online at the New York Times than they do in scrolling through the paper. I'm kind of old fashioned in that yeah. respect, but so you've just kind of laid out this sort of evolving media what platforms so can you just go a little deeper into what these new technologies are and how are their effects unfolding and and at the same time i want to ask you the role of media no matter yeah. what the form uh, is seems to be even greater than it was before is is that my perception or is that the fact well let me answer that in a scattershot way okay uh just for your last question yeah, I mean, the society is dominated by by digital media, right? We're bombarded, and, you know, I don't have to go into a big explanation of that at this moment. We'll talk about it effects in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. But uh, clearly, you know, we're surrounded by, we, we carry the world in our pocket with smartphones, right? I mean, just to begin there. So, you know, the entire uh, global package of information not necessarily knowledge, but information and data and whatever, they're readily accessible on your telephone. So, yes, you know, we're bombarded and we're marinated in media. (laughs) But I want to back up just a moment so we put this in context, right? Yeah. What do these eras, what do these different uh, uh, moments of dominance of platforms mean? And if you look at the uh, typographical era, the print era, which uh, began in the 15th century with movable type and the Gutenberg press, uh, just stop and think for a minute what the unintended and unknown consequences of that was. Uh, Gutenberg invented the, (laughs) the movable type so he could print the Protestant Bible. Right. Uh, That was his main interest. Little did he know and little did anybody know in the last part of the 15th century that within a couple of hundred years, this was going to produce massive literacy, massive publishing. It was going to provide 
the basis for modern science, for modern medicine, for engineering, for democracy, for uh, the French Revolution. <laughs> uh, none of the world that we know as of, say, the year 2000 or 1990, depending when you want to start the digital revolution, for 500 years, uh, the type, you know, print, uh, defined our world. It meant that to become an adult, you had to go to school to learn how to read. Because if you didn't know how to read, you couldn't access knowledge because it was no longer orally transmitted. It was transmitted on the written page. You had to learn grammar. You had to acquire a vocabulary. You had to think logically. So, uh, you know, modern civilization is based on the printing press that was, you know, invented in the 1458 or whenever it was. Uh, and I want to make a, a, a serious point here. The carrier of knowledge, which in this case was print, also has a direct impact on the quality and the type of information that we call knowledge, right? And of course, this is what Marshall McLuhan meant by saying the media is the message. And right. if you if you expand that out, I mean, you know, you really had to get educated to 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 engage deeply in the print era because you had to think logically and you had to understand all kinds of stuff to decode these alphabetic symbols that turn into words, etc. We are now in a transitional period where a lot of that, obviously, language is going to be retained, but the nature of information and the nature of knowledge is also changing along with the carrier that transmits it to you. I'm speaking with Mark Cooper, and we're basically kind of picking Mark's brain about the history of media, essentially, and what it means today in this time of transition that Mark is describing. And of course, it begs the question, I know we're going to go through this, and you're going to lead up to the new form of media that you're going to be introducing at the end. So that's a teaser. Uh, mm-hmm. But but I want to get into a little bit just to, or maybe ask you to uh, delineate the kind of um, not just the causes of change, but the kind of conditions that and social forces determining the nature of this media revolution as we see it. And that begs, of course, the question of the structure of power behind it, because I know right. that we're going to talk later on about whether or not it's democratizing. But let's just right. stay with that now. That's an excellent question. Uh uh, uh, you know, I think that the causes uh, of the revolution uh, that we're, you know, in the middle of, uh, 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 some of them are rather obvious, and, you know, we've heard it a million times, and it's true, right, that, uh, you know, the, 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 the emergence of the World Wide Web, the invention of... Uh, 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 visual browsers, you know, like Netscape, Safari, <laughs> Chrome, you know, Opera, these things that have come and gone. Uh, oh, Chrome is still around. Uh, uh, this really uh, began to um, uh, eat away at print because it was so much more easy to access. And frankly, uh, newspapers 
primarily newspapers, had no clue. They had no clue as to what it was. They thought that in the 1990s, even in the late 1990s, even as late as 2000, many major newspapers <laughs> thought that the World Wide Web was like Citizen Band Radio. You know, it was going to be in a Burt Reynolds movie as a gadget, and nobody's going to pay attention to it and go away. So the 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 I, I call the the elite management of newspapers. I've always called them newsosaurs, like dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. And, and they are. They could only think in this very narrow way and in a rather elitist way as well. Like they were the they were the gatekeepers of information, right? They're the ones who decided what was fit for you to see, what was fit to print. They're the ones who decided uh, what the margins of political debate would be, right? right? They're the ones who would say, well, this is not appropriate or this is too far or this is not objective or whatever the hell it was. But they got uh, snatched by uh, the emergence of the web, and um, num- number one. And uh, I also think this is my own that, – that's indisputable, right? Right. Uh, I also think that – and this is a personal theory, if you'll allow me. Uh, yes, this, please. This is a personal theory that I have no – uh, scientific <laughs> substantiation of it's just kind of a guess. Uh, I think that with the rise of television over the years and the changing uh, nature of television, which became uh, less uh, of stuffed shirt and more, you know, raucous, if you will, and more informal, uh, that language of television, the actual language permeated the culture and it rendered newspaper language sort of weird because newspapers in their uh, silly, uh, if you will, in their silly acrobatics to uh, try to appear to have no opinions and to be, you know, above the fray, uh, they use a very tortured, complex language. They use language that uh, is it once elevated and requires uh, a 12th grade education, which a lot of people really don't have. And it also employs a grammatical structure and vocabulary that doesn't sound like real English, right? So or like real conversational English. So if you see today on the web, if you look at, you know, anything, including newspapers nowadays <laughs> that are on the web. You you and I both know, and everybody in the audience knows, that, uh, you know, the language even of headlines is very informal. It's like 19 reasons why you shouldn't pick your nose, you know, or, or, or something like that. Or, you know, how uh, Donald Trump really lied to us about uh, Iran. Well, this is the way people really talk. Uh, when you read a newspaper, it's almost like reading a foreign language. Unless you're really educated, you can really read through it. So I think, this is just my own theory, I, I think that as American society evolved, became more and more informal, uh, more, if you will, small d democratic in the sense of less visible uh, you know, class distinctions on the surface, uh, I think that um, newspapers were 
apart from being beaten down by the digital sites, I think their language became uh, almost obsolete. I don't know if that makes any sense. It's a personal theory that... I've never heard anybody else come up with it, but I, and I might be wrong, but it's an idea. Well, I think it's fascinating because it sort of goes back to what you were saying before about, you know, the birth pangs of the new are within the old. And so you still have, you know, in mainstream journalism, in the newspapers and maybe radios, uh, you know, programs of record, the style of, you know, you you have a reporter asking questions or writing up, you know, from what the questions were, but it's a he said, she said, and it's also like artificial balance because you have to do that and try to pretend to be neutral when we, you know, I would say there's no such thing as neutrality, um, even if you think you have. It and then and and at the same time, Mark, you're talking about two things I, that I'm listening to. One is the the democratizing potential of this new form, and language yeah. is part of it, even though it gets more truncated and informal. And right. on the other hand, the you know the avenues of elite manipulation and how it's being enhanced. And we see you know even the front page of the New York Times it says the Russians are even going to do it more sophisticatedly this right. time and that sort of thing. So I kind of want you to pull those two together in yeah. terms of the carry, well, carrier style and content and power. Yeah, well that's not Let's not romanticize the era of newspapers to begin with, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's true that the Russians or anybody else uh, would have had great difficulty in manipulating uh, the news uh, in the New York Times in, you know, 1965. But the New York Times didn't have any problem in manipulating it. <laughs> uh, and, uh you know, with their own biases and their own the failure of the press really to understand the Cold War has shaped our Bali politic right up to today. And they're the primary villains in that, in creating a, a world of fear and us and them. And just if you read any media from the period of the Cold War, it is just filled with bias confirmation. I would also say that just anecdotally, <laughs> it's just anecdotal. Uh, while we do have, in, in my opinion, I do think the Russian security services are penetrating social media, and we can talk about what that really means. But I would also just remind people that the U.S. media was riddled with United States security service agents. Uh, there are uh, there's tons of uh, peer-reviewed and popular literature out there that clearly documents the number of U.S. journalists who were uh, collaborating with uh, state security agencies here, mostly the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, so, you know, manipulation of news is nothing new. It didn't begin with social media. Now. I think you're asking me, what are the actual attributes uh, currently yeah. of, of digital media? Is that, am I right about that? Yes, yes, okay. absolutely. Right. So let's, let's do a little laundry list here, okay? Let's look at the good and the bad. Uh, uh, the good is something that I love to pound on, right? It's my favorite sentence, and it escapes everybody. The the rise of digital media 
means that for the first time in U.S. history, the First Amendment can really be practiced by anybody. Okay? That is really a gigantic step forward in the world of progress and social justice, right? We used to say the gatekeepers are gone. They, they you know, Dean Baquet or Marty Barrett at the Times or the Post, they can gatekeep their papers, but they can't gatekeep the world. You know, Matt Drudge sitting in his basement can, can knock him off the pedestal any day he per- prefers to, mostly because he has a bigger readership. And, uh, you know, he, he doesn't, uh, and, and, and then you, you go down the scale that, uh, somebody you've never heard of, uh, can, uh, put something on Facebook, uh, on their own blog, uh, on their own site, uh, and they don't need anybody's permission. So the cost of publishing, what, what are the impact of the digital revolution? The cost of publishing has been reduced to practically zero. And that includes books, because you can also write your own book, and you can sell it on Amazon. You don't need a publisher in between. But right. There's a question there about marketing, but you can also do your own marketing on social media. The other effect of digital media is the deprofessionalization of journalism. Right. Now, that sounds like something horrible, but it's not. What that means is that journalists have never in this country been licensed. You don't need a permit to be a journalist. The difference between uh, 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 somebody who writes in their own journal and a journalist is that the latter is probably getting paid, right? Uh, uh, Before you go on with this, Mark, and I'm going to interrupt your thought just for a second. I want to come back because you're leaping into exactly, you know, the larger question of what... The, what the digital revolution has done to journalism, and there's a couple of aspects, and I think just to go super fast over the history of that, because yeah. as soon as it began, you know, and people migrated first from what bitnet to internet and emails and all the rest, and all of a sudden people, you know, were writing. You yourself was, were one of the first uh, of the regular bloggers, and right. then the, then there was social media, and then there's you know all these newer forms right. that we're going to get to the one that you're going to be introducing uh, probably in about ten minutes or so, which your new project. But I guess, you know, one question that one has is not only like to mention the democratizing effect of this, um, anybody, as you said, at a very low cost um, can be a journalist, but it also right. raises the question of who's paying them and how do they do it? You know? right. Well, okay, Susan, there's no question. And, and uh, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm delineating the good and the bad, right? Okay. Yeah. So you have, you have, the, the potential for great democratization and the reality of certain democratization. Let me just give you one quick example. When the big BP oil spill happened, right, in the Gulf uh, during the Obama administration, yep. uh, I can't recall the guy's name, but there was a guy that nobody ever heard of who was a drilling engineer, a retired drilling engineer, and he had a blog, and within a couple of weeks you could see that the mainstream media was basically only relying on him and I, which was great. And I was relying on him and in that, and he was not quote unquote a journalist. He was an engineer, but he was practicing journalism. I don't care who you classify as a journalist or not. What I think is important is who commits acts of journalism. 
when George Holiday in 1991 filmed Rodney King being beaten out of his window, and I think I think George Holiday was a plumber. He was a journalist at that moment. He was committing an act of journalism. Okay, uh, and now of course we see this all the time with social media. If you want to know what's going on in Iran, uh, you want to hope that their Twitter hasn't been shut down because you're going to find out a lot more from reading the the people's Twitter feeds from Iran than you're going to read. Uh, from uh, somebody sitting at a desk who went to Harvard, uh, got good grades, and really doesn't even speak Farsi, but works at the New York Times, right? Uh, you know, I'd rather hear it direct. Now, you're right. The, the negative side of this, we've seen as the uh, web has grown and as digital media has become dominant, we see uh, mammoth corporations moving in. Right. Mm. Google. We know that Google and Facebook are the primary uh, villains, the Amazon, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to delineate the good parts of those. And I think there are good parts. I think there are great things about Google. I think there's great things about Facebook. I think there's great things about Amazon. I also think there's horrific things about it. And they threaten us with a monopolization of that space. Right. Uh, just uh, for a moment, if you will, uh, I'm going to put a parenthetical Marxist statement in this that I picked up from uh, the character Slavoj uh, Zizek. Right. <laughs> yeah. Who I love as a performance artist. Right. right. Uh, but he did come up with kind of a brilliant uh, characterization. He's in referring to the politics in the, the, po- the political economics, if you will, of uh, the web, he said that if you look at something like Microsoft, right, uh, Microsoft doesn't make its fortune the way that Marxists historically assumed they would. That is to say, (laughs) Bill Gates doesn't have, you know, $40 billion or whatever it is because he's extracting the surplus labor of his workers, what he's doing is he's renting out a common space to ordinary consumers. He's living off rent because uh, because the the uh, the platforms that places like Microsoft and Facebook provide really are now common spaces. They really are like a big public park. They really are the place where we conduct our conversations and our interactions and these guys own it and they charge us directly or indirectly to use it. That's not, that's not, uh, sorry, that's not classic, uh, you know, industrial exploitation. That's a totally new type. But Um, if I can interrupt, because I think you've touched on something that's incredibly insightful and that, you know, Robert Brenner is writing about, too, because indeed we're in a transition, but it's back to feudalism and rentier capitalism. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, these guys, I mean, you know, you you know, (laughs) Zizek Zizek has something interesting to say. He says, you know, not so much in the United States, but in, in the European world where there's lots of, well, even here now with the gig economy, now... 
if you're in the gig economy or you want to be a proletarian, right? <laughs> right. It's a step proletarians, up. Proletarians get a salary. They may even get health care. You know, they have some job security. So, uh, you know, the workers at Google and the workers at Microsoft, God bless them. They're making six figures uh, or more and, you know, living in Palo Alto and buying boats. I'm not worried about them unionizing or not. I'm worried about the fact that our major common platforms are in the hands of private parties uh, when they should be democratized. I'm not in favor of breaking up Facebook. That makes no sense to me. I'm in favor of um, expropriating it. <laughs> right. So, Mark Cooper, I want to just say, because I, before we get on to, of course, my favorite thing, too, we need to nationalize these forms and make them or socialize them. But I want yeah. to go back right now, because what you've yeah. really done is to introduce something that, you know, or to imply something that everybody's thinking about. And that is, given this sort of, let's call it horizontal, more egalitarian form of information that we're seeing, and yet renting space from, you know, owners who uh, well, let me just say, it. What, how do we know what's true and where does fake news oh. fit into this and what model of truth do we accept yeah. in this day and well, era? That's, that, that's, a, that's, that's really a, a favorite bone, not for me to pick on, but to uh, take a sledgehammer to. Okay, good. Because um, when you talk about fake news, it implies that there's something called real news. <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't believe that. Uh, I became a journalist in uh, 1970 or 71 because I, uh, coming out of the Vietnam War, I really disliked journalists in the media. So I said, well, I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to be a good one, right? Uh, or a challenging one. Uh, look, Susie, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a difficult, uh, and it's a, it's a very difficult and rather challenging uh, notion to accept, but you know, it comes down to two words, caveat emptor, which means that the primary responsibility for understanding the news and discerning what's real and what isn't is on you. It's on the reader because the reader has to evaluate uh, what they're reading or listening to or what they're watching and they have to see what the sourcing is they they have to sit there like a juror okay it's almost like you're in a jury box and you have to hear the argument but then you have to say well is there any substantiation for this if you are lazy and all you do is read memes and headlines on facebook well yeah you'll have no idea you could be reading something from estonia turkey russia the man in the moon a psychopath <laughs> Uh, you know, in New Jersey, uh, 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 a very serious reporter in uh, Washington. You don't know if, uh, if you're just uh, superficially scanning. Also, the notion that I'm very nervous about the notion that, oh, if we only had, you know, one news source that we could really trust, uh, <laughs> I really hate that concept because it implies two things. It implies that you, as a consumer and a citizen, aren't going to do anything except sit on your butt and watch a TV channel or read one newspaper. And it also 
means that you're a prime candidate to move to China. Because if you go to China, you don't have any problem in discerning fake news or real news. There's only news, and it all comes from the Chinese government. Yeah, it's the official and, line. And, and that's it, baby. Okay? Yeah. Uh, I know that a lot of listeners uh, are going to say, are not going to like what I'm about to say, but, you know, I call them as I see them. Never before in world history has so much information and knowledge been so readily available to people, right? In fact, there's too much of it. There's a surfeit of it. But you can't, you know, if we were doing this interview in 1980, we would be complaining that it's hard to get real news about more obscure things. If you want to learn about, you know, the war in Ethiopia or the war in El Salvador, whatever it is, right. you're going to really have to scrounge for it because the, the mainstream media is going to cover it. I'm sorry, but that argument is now in the same category as the horse and carriage. On the web, whether it's newspapers, magazines, blogs, whatever it is, the, the, the cornucopia of outlets, you can't sit with a serious face and say there's a lack of information. Please, there's a there's an avalanche of information that does make it more difficult to paw through it and make your decisions about uh, what you're going to believe and what you're not going to believe. But, you know, if you read something to take this down to the ground level, you read, you know, a 300 word blurb on Facebook that looks kind of controversial and you're not quite sure if this thing is true or not. Well, you know what, it's incumbent on you to do the research and say, well, is there anything else written about this? Can I find anything else about this? Can I even go to something as simple as Wikipedia and and see, uh, you know, a short history of this country to see if what I'm reading even makes any sense given its historical antecedents? So... Uh, So what I see, Mark, is that you're laying out really in a very structured form, and I like it a lot, because we go through the theory and the history of how we got to this moment. But what we see right now is this uh, era of democratized journalism, but struggling with the surfeit of knowledge and how to support it. But something that you did at uh, Huffington Post, too, off the bus, which is uh, citizen journalism. And so it really mm-hmm. kind of d- begs two questions. Who's a journalist today? And mm-hmm. how do we deal with this uh, right. new media landscape? First of all, let, let me plug two people here uh, because I'm stealing a lot of their ideas. Okay? <laughs> yep. Uh, they're both at NYU. One of them is a pretty good friend of mine, and it's Jay Rosen. Uh, I suggest strongly his website called PressThink.org. Jay is a brilliant analyst and theorist. And also at NYU, Clay Shirky, S-H-I-R-K-Y. I I don't have a URL for him, but uh, he's uh, uh, also brilliant. I recommend his book called Here Comes Everybody. Jay Rosen was really the brains behind the project that we did at uh, the Huffington Post uh, for the 2008 presidential campaign. And what we used was called a pro-am model. Now, I'm the one who said a half hour ago that we don't know what the new models are going to be. Right. 
Uh, and I don't. All I know is that there's several of them being experimented with now. Some will prosper, some will fail, some will mute uh, or mutate. Uh, the model that we use, which I think works, is a good model and really tells us what I think a thinking journalist should do is be the leader of a posse. Okay, And what that means is that and this is what we did in the Huffington Post, uh, at least in the off-the-bus section. We had a small core of what you might call professional or experienced journalists, myself included, uh, also a couple of people who were highly experienced in uh, web organizing, digital organizing. And we led posses. We would put out um, a project and say, uh, let's, uh, I remember one we did during the uh, Democratic primary of 2007, where, you know, it was Hillary and uh, Obama, right? Mm-hmm. Primary. And, we, and John Edwards. And we said, uh, uh, well, uh, this was early on. It was around this stage. It was before Iowa. And we said, what's on the minds of Democratic voters? <laughs> really, you know, what's really motivating them? And we, we our assumption was the answer was going to be the war in Iraq, right? So what we did is we put out a call for volunteers uh, and over the web, we got a couple hundred of them. Uh, We vetted them to some degree, not much, but we vetted them to see, you know, were these rational people with real names and blah, blah, blah. And then we provided them... uh, a questionnaire with like five or six, seven questions that we wanted them to use. And we asked them to, we designated certain democratic precincts in the cities they were in. And they were in something like 35 different cities, if I remember correctly. And we said, please take these, please go out, go door to door and get as many responses as you can and then summarize them or send, I can't remember with summarizing or sending in the raw material. Okay. Uh, and that was a way of doing a door to door, unscientific, but interesting poll, right. Or sounding, I would say. And so the results came back and then we had a second tier of more advanced volunteers who could actually handle the data. Okay. Then that data that came in from the field was then passed to our core, to the four or five of us running this project, and we analyzed that, and then we designated uh, one of our colleagues to actually write the article, right? And the article, based on all of this crowdsourcing stuff, turned up a very surprising result, which was uh, the primary issue that was on people's mind, Democratic voters' minds in 2007-8, was not the war in Iraq, but was the economy. And we were completely wrong until, you know, we got all this information. But we were able, therefore, thereby to leverage uh, the talents of hundreds of people to produce this. It, so, to me, uh, a res- it, 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 to put it into uh, real practical terms, if you're working in the current media environment as a professional journalist, 
uh, and professional journalists don't like to hear this. The collective <laughs> audience is actually smarter than you are. They have to be. It's just a matter of mathematics. 250 random people uh, who are going to respond to you have to be smarter than you are individually. It's just a fact of luck. And I don't care what your GPA was at you know, Yale or Stanford. The, conve- the, the wisdom of the group is going to add to whatever you know. So that sort of symbiotic relationship between those who call themselves journalists and those people we used to call the audience uh, becomes more equalized, right? Yeah. Uh, and and uh, to your second question about who's a journalist, yeah. I couldn't care less. There are people who are journalists. They, I'm not going to name names here, but uh, I might if you push me. <laughs> but there are journalists that you and I and everybody else in, who's listening now knows really suck. You know, <laughs> they're just stupid, right? Or they're bad, or they're biased. And I will name and, one name. And have no I, history. I, I will name one name. I think Chuck Todd is a clown. Okay, and not just because I disagree with him uh, politically. I just think he's a fool, right? And has no business doing what he's doing. And that's true with most anchors and with a lot of journalists. There are some. There are some journalists like Jane Mayer, who's fantastic, writes for the New Yorker. Right? There's others who are real clumpers. There are other people who do not call themselves journalists who are absolutely brilliant, know much more than journalists. Or they happen to be in the right place at the right time and can report. So, again, I'm going to repeat what I said before. I have absolutely no interest in who is considered or calls themselves a journalist. I am only interested in who commits acts of journalism. And that might be a journalist or it might be a plumber or it might be a doctor. And I'm speaking with Mark Cooper, and this is a great place, I think, Mark, to go from this description that you have of what's happened in the media sphere to the who is a journalist and this new collaborative process that you describe that uses people but also makes journalism an active process in creating the news. And I think that's really important. And and it kind of takes us in our sort of final segment to, you know, how you see this new media. And then to how within that, um, you know, you are going to launch this new uh, newsletter called The Coop Scoop um, that's going to be providing information. And how does that fit in this sort of evolution? (laughs) Well, uh, thanks for asking. Uh, I'm not. I'm not ashamed to plug what I'm doing now. Look, uh, as I said, the models are evolving, right? Mm. Uh, I've been involved in many experimental things. I self-satisfied for what we created at uh, the University of Southern California Annenberg School, where uh, the digital publication that I started uh, actually became the biggest in the country of any university-based news site. Uh, we won more than 50 journalism awards, competing with real media, not competing with student media, <laughs> competing with real media. Hmm. Uh, and we beat 
you know, the L.A. Times and others in the Press Club Awards and things like that. Uh, I've been involved in the Huffington Post thing. I was, you know, there for a couple of years. I've been involved in, I've written for, you know, dozens of publications. And, uh, you know, for 30 years, I've been a contributing editor and at times uh, a staff writer for The Nation, which is sort of an alternative, you know, to the mainstream media, even though it's in the old print model, though somewhat on the web nowadays. And theoretically, I retired (laughs) four years ago (laughs) from USC and mostly from writing and then found that I started using Facebook as kind of a writing outlet just for, just to keep, you know, because I'm interested. Right. And I still have things to say. And I tend to write longer pieces on Facebook. And to my surprise, really, I built a really big following. You know, I have thousands of followers and uh, lots of good reaction. And I started a, you know, an old school newsletter in 2016 but I couldn't sustain it because I was too busy doing other stuff. Uh, now I have time, and I've decided to start again a newsletter that will be uh, weekly or more. I suspect it's probably going to be three or four times a week. And I'm going to be moving my content from Facebook, the stuff that I would ordinarily put on Facebook, onto this newsletter, which is going to use old-fashioned email for distribution, uh, because it's the most efficient way for a newsletter if you want to keep it subscriber only. And I do, not to be an elitist, not to exclude people, but I need to have some funding for it, not for me, but I'm planning on, in fact, I'm already interviewing people. I'm planning on um, hiring at least one, if not more, researcher uh, at least on part-time, to help me out so I can really create a quality product. So I'm not trying to uh, invent something new necessarily. I'm trying to uh, take what I think has been, the, from my, uh, you know, from my point of view, the best of what you can do on Facebook and make it better. I also am a little irritated by Facebook because I keep my uh, my feed open. And by the way, anybody can still find me today at Mark, M-A-R-C, Cooper on Facebook. And, you know, I love the comments. I learn a lot from the commentary. I interact with everybody who comments. I don't just put stuff up and not read. I go into the comments and answer and talk to people and razz them and give them a bad time sometimes or congratulate them. But I'm uh, irritated by the trolls of the sort that, you know, are common like on Twitter. I really don't like, and it's it's a question to taste. I don't like people that have no connection to me coming in uh, doing a, a drive-by shot. You exactly. know? The snipers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really don't have time for that. It's just distracting. It throws the discussion off kilter because humbly, I think my posts uh, create a, a very good debate. So what I'm going to do, Susie, is I'm going to ask people to donate 
as little as they want. Any donation, even if it's a dollar or two dollars, will get you on the subscriber list only so that I can put a fence around it so we cannot be bothered by uh, trolls. And I'm uh, going to use mostly long form, longer form. I'm going to try to give people really serious, deep analysis of what's going on politically. I'm going to be transparent about my politics. I think I would call myself a left libertarian skeptic contrarian. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of have leftist principles. I come out of the left. I'm sympathetic to the left. You know, I worked for Salvador Allende. I've been a socialist of some sort or another for 50 years, but I'm very skeptical about everything, and there are no sacred cows. I'm as likely to rip into Chris Hedges or Michael Moore as I am into uh, uh, Donald Trump if the case merits it. And I, I want to keep the analysis on the straight and narrow, not in a false objectivity, but in reality, what's really going on and what's really happening. You know, you're promoting right now the Coop Scoop yeah. newsletter and you will be taking micro donations. So where if people are listening and they want to make that donation, where where are they going to do that? The content, when it comes out to you in a newsletter, will also be posted on a yet to be announced web forum. So it will be simultaneously published there, accessible only to subscribers and donors. And that will be a Facebook like type forum where you can comment and debate and where I will participate with you. So you can read it in the privacy of your bathroom, uh, in newsletter, and then you can go onto the web if you want and uh, mix it up with us. All right, let me tell people quickly, I really would appreciate any donation. uh, And the best way, if you're going to make a one-time donation, please write this down. It's paypal.me. M-E, paypal.me slash Cooper Newsletter. And Cooper Newsletter is one word. So there's no dot com in that. Uh, where? Paypal.me slash Cooper Newsletter. I also have another site, which I actually prefer if you don't like PayPal. And that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash Cooper Newsletter, one word, Cooper Newsletter. Uh, That site, you can make a small donation or you can make a big donation. The advantage of that site uh, is that it sustains that. It it, it charges you monthly, and you can stop at any time. There's no trick to it. Either one will work. Uh, I would really appreciate it. You don't have to make a big contribution, though. Uh, I'm not going to turn those down. As you were speaking about, you know, how all these things came about, you know, starting at the Huffington Post and off the bus and literally right up to the newsletter, there's a lot of deja vu because of the Iraq War and Iowa. You know, now, so are you going to start with the Iraq once again being the center or the eye of the storm between yes. Iran and the U.S. and also the presidential politics? How do you see your first issue? <laughs> <laughs> That's a sneaky question. Without committing myself to it, yep. I, the first thing I'm going to do is uh, make a um, uh, try to make a cold-blooded analysis of where we stand with Bernie Sanders because I think most of the, the listeners are very interested in that. 
And I'm going to do a cold-blooded analysis. I am I have no problem saying that I'm a donor to Bernie Sanders, but that doesn't mean that Bernie Sanders is necessarily going to win. I hope he does. But if he does, that also raises a whole lot of questions that people aren't dealing with yet. And if he loses, there's a whole lot of questions people aren't dealing with yet. So I want to be an anal- in the newsletter. The newsletter is not going to be propaganda or polemics. It's going to be real analysis uh, with no with no filters. Mark Cooper, thanks so much for joining us. Also for just taking the time today to go over the history of the media, the political economy of the media, the evolution of the media, and the current form, including your brand new Coop Scoop newsletter, which we should see soon. Mark Cooper, veteran journalist, thanks for joining us. Uh, You're welcome, Susie. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.